This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And the surprise announcement last week that if Labor is re-elected in November's state election, they'll spend $300 million to plan for a $50 billion suburban rail loop has made a lot of people excited. Uh, The proposed underground rail loop with around 12 stations will run from Werribee right through the north and the airport to Cheltenham in the southeast. But what does it need to get right to really work and how is it that such a big project could come seemingly from nowhere? Uh, Dr Crystal Legacy is a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne. It's good to have you on Triple R, Crystal. And I suppose a big project like this uh, makes urban planners excited. Uh, but should we be concerned that the idea sort of seemed to come from nowhere? Uh, yes. Um, look, it's a, it's a big project. It's a bold project. Um, a lot of people are using words like transformational, uh, and that certainly gets people excited in the lead up to a state election. Um, but, you know, it's always good to have a healthy level of cynicism with announcements like this. And one of the big um, questions that I have is, where's the transport plan? Um, and, and how does this, this rail suburban rail loop fit within the broader strategy for, um, for Melbourne in terms of land use planning? And, and so we've had Infrastructure Victoria set up, I guess, in, in recent memory to supposedly take the politics out of planning and, and as a body to articulate, a, a, I guess, a, a long-form vision into the future for transport in this state. But this project didn't come out of Infrastructure Victoria. Should we be concerned about that? Oh, look, I, I think I think Infrastructure Victoria is certainly was set up to help assess projects and to advise governments um, on their decisions. Um, so it is an advisory um, body. Um, what I what we'll likely see is Infrastructure Victoria actually assessing probably different stages of this project as it as it gets rolled out um, to sort of carefully consider um, what the broader impacts are. And and we also need to think about the sequencing of a, of a project like this um, relative to other ambitions like Melbourne Rail. Um, sorry, Melbourne Airport Rail, um, as well as Melbourne Metro too. And also, should we be starting the project in the eastern suburbs? Why not start it from the west? Yeah, there's lots of questions. And I suppose, um, you know, at, alongside a lot of excitement on social media and, and, and you know, in, in my networks of people, I've been speaking uh, over the weekend about this project and people are like, well, about time, we need to look to the future. We need to think about Melbourne and how it all connects together and making it a city that isn't just going to be car dependent forever. But I wonder... You know, a lot has to go right for this project to get off the ground. Uh, Should we be holding our breath, you think? Well, I think we need to hold the government to account, all governments and all parliamentarians. Um, this is certainly not a left versus the right um, discussion. And right now we're seeing two, uh, two major parties who are going into state election proposing uh, major toll road infrastructure. So the Liberal Party talking about uh, revitalizing or revising uh, East West Link and, of course, the, the Labor Party government with Westgate Tunnel and North East Link. So why is it that we're um, putting billions of dollars into building toll road infrastructure? which will just put people back into their cars only to then try to take them out of their cars um, later on with a suburban rail loop. So there's a little bit of inconsistency there in my mind. So those are the kind of questions that we need to start raising and, and seriously hold the government to account in the lead up to the state election. And, and how do we account for that inconsistency? I mean, is this about kind of winning votes in marginal seats to be completely sceptical or, or is yeah. there, I, I guess, a lack of vision from the, the major political parties about how to, to have a comprehensive transport plan. 
Yes, look, I, I think we need to continue to, to talk about um, this lack of um, integrated transport planning. Um, I think we need to start advocating for good planning and good planning outcomes. We talk a lot about depoliticizing um, infrastructure planning and transport planning, and it's kind of impossible to do that. You know, transport is about the redistribution of a finite resource, so it's always going to be political. And, and certainly elections provide an opportunity for us to consider what do we value about our city and what are our, our ambitions. But we then need to take it down from those points and, and talk about, well, if we're going to, if this rail loop is something that we're truly committed to, well, how do we do it um, in a way that adheres to good planning? So how do we make sure that we plan with respect to our employment clusters, um, that we uh, maintain some commitment to affordable housing, and how do we build density um, to support a rail loop like this in the regions um, that it's currently targeting. Yeah, I suppose it's hard to advocate for good planning outcomes when you could just say bold new vision. Um, this is what the city needs. Imagine Melbourne without it, which is the kind of uh, rhetoric that we're getting. But but just yeah. to kind of focus on what we have now, I mean, in parallel to all the excitement, um, we are hearing people say, well, my train was cancelled this morning coming in from mm-hmm. Bendigo. Um, my train was cancelled this morning coming in from Frankston. We can't even get the yeah. existing yeah. network right. I mean, should we hold that again? Against the government, do you think? Oh, look, we should only always um, press the government um, to, to make the quality of our services better. I mean, quality is absolutely at the core. Um, and if we can't deliver the services now that we have, then how can we imagine de- delivering an ambitious project like this? I think we need to think a lot more about and realistically about buses and the way buses can better um, connect up. Um, low-lying suburban locations um, to existing uh, rail infrastructure that we've got. I mean, we don't have to necessarily spend $50 billion to to make a better system. I mean, we, we know what we need to do in terms of achieving levels of integration and using buses more efficiently and more effectively, but we're just not doing that. And the question of why not needs to, needs to be brought to the fore. Um, and I'm certainly hoping that people are asking those questions of government. I know my colleagues are. We're speaking with Dr Crystal Legacy from the University of Melbourne all about the Victorian government's announcement of the Melbourne Suburban Rail Loop, which it said uh, if it wins government at the November state election, it will, I guess, advance the process of making that reality. Some critics, Crystal, have kind of suggested that this project could be delivered in, in a reduced time frame than what the government says. So I think 22 years was the time frame they put on it. So 2050 is, is around the time when we could have this Suburban Rail Loop. Some have said yeah. we could do it in around 10 or 15 and I guess there is often frustration around how slow these major transport projects are to kind of get off the ground. What's your sense of that? Oh, look, um, in, in terms of, I mean, sometimes you have to plant the seed and the seed kind of germinates for a, a number of decades um, before commitment is realised. And Should we say airport rail there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, airport rail, um, you know, the, the city rail to, loop, uh, rail to Doncaster. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and and that's not necessarily a fair call. I mean, we should, if we're committed to something, we should do the technical reporting and the good planning um, immediately and get on with it. Um, what we tend to do is we tend to prioritize um, sort of road infrastructure and big motorways over public transport. And that's one reason why we're in the position we're in at the moment, in the situation we're in, is because we haven't been prioritizing public transport infrastructure for decades now. We've now realized that we need to, um, and we haven't done the good planning, um, the background planning to support that those investments. So that's why a project like this may take a little while, absolutely. 
Yeah, and I suppose we can throw into the mix that, you know, this particular government has really, you know, put its hand up and said they're going to make those investments. So metro tunnel level crossing removals, which um, helps public transport as well as commuters and then new extensions, um, rail extensions as well. And I suppose I really uh, noted that the opposition didn't say that they didn't like the uh, suburban rail loop idea. They just said that they would uh, put it to Infrastructure Victoria if they're elected, so they haven't knocked it on the head. And I suppose, is that a, a sign that we might get bipartisan support, I wonder? Oh, look, it's, it's, it's hard to say, actually. Um, you know how they like to um, politicise um, transport in, in, terms of, in, in terms of party politics. So I, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath to see what uh, Matthew Guy and his party might offer up as an alternative um, vision for Melbourne, because it's all about a vision. It's all about an alternative vision to the other party. And, and so when we talk about removing the politics, that precisely is what we're trying to remove. We're trying to get out of a situation whereby we're just trading infrastructure projects but instead getting into a bigger discussion about a vision. And that's what we want from our politicians. We want a discussion about the big priorities and the big visions, not just trading, um, trading, excuse me, trading projects. Yeah, I suppose you, you could argue this is a, a big vision, but I wonder, do you think it's mm-hmm. a winner, Crystal, because it is focusing on the suburbs and not just the inner city, which is where most public transport infrastructure is? Yeah, look, I, I think this one um, is, is a project to um, ignite some excitement um, in the parts of Melbourne that perhaps haven't thought that they could ask for public transport. Um, I think if you live in an outer suburban um, um, suburb, you, you tend to think that if you've got um, congestion, and that's the word we like to throw around, we've got congestion, that the only way to overcome that is to build another road. Well, this is a different alternative. Now, this is offering an alternative to that model, um, and I hopefully will shift the debate a little bit as well um, uh, in that part of our, our, our region um, towards um, something that might be pointing towards um, a wider vision and wider commitment towards public transport. And so the government has put this out there as kind of a big ticket um, item ahead of the November state election. And some of the criticisms about these large projects is that they don't, I guess, engage people, engage the citizens and and residents of Victoria in planning for how these sorts of things could be best implemented before the project is actually announced. Would you expect that there would be an engagement process now that this kind of has been announced as a possibility? Well, I think we we have to um, demand that be the case. Um, Often when we see projects announced, we wait until the environmental assessment process for community engagement to really sort of kick off. And at that point, the big decisions about a project have already been made. And at that point, communities are just involved in a process of trying to mitigate negative impacts. Um, I think now um, citizens need to be, uh, the community needs to be engaged in in a bigger discussion. And a good opportunity to do that is in the development of an integrated transport plan. Um, that would be a good opportunity to engage the community. And from there, a discussion about, well, how are we going to fund this project? Um, right now, we've got the Labor Party government saying, well, we can ask the federal government or we can rely on the private sector. But there are other ways in which a project like this could be funded, like value capture. And we need to have a conversation with the community about 
funding opportunities and options for projects of this scale. And I suppose, um, you know, just finally, we are, I mentioned level crossing removals. A lot of those communities were consulted, maybe not necessarily involved to the level that they would have liked. Um, a, yeah. a lot have ended up with a sky rail proposal rather than a tunnel. This big project is said to be a tunnel. It's a, a loop that goes underground. Uh, I suppose it's it's so conceptual at the moment, it's hard to sort of say whether it might end up somewhat sky rail or above ground or whether it will all be underground. What are your thoughts around yeah. that? Is it just too early to speculate? No, I think it's, it's uh, at this point in time we need to have a conversation about that. And I, it's amazing what you can do with, with good um, conceptual drawings in terms of engaging the community about how their, how their neighbourhoods, how their streets and how their cities can, can, can change from a visual perspective. And, and getting communities to kind of reimagine those spaces is really, really, it's a big part of the discussion. It's a big part of community consultation. And, and it's a big part in terms of how we manage um, sort of the oppositional kind of politics. You get the NIMBY politics that you might get a little, a little bit later down the road. If, if, if communities have a sense of ownership in the delivery and the, the visioning of a project, that certainly shapes um, and, and changes the level of, of conflict that you might see later on, which we saw with SkyRail. Yeah, and I, I suppose um, finally, Crystal, have we ever got this right before? I mean, I, I often say, you know, show me where you've got a, a great development right and where you're going to model it from. Like, it, you know, can we model this on the, the inner city loop or is there somewhere that we can look that this has been successful? Oh, uh, yes. Look, I'd, I'd look to Vancouver. I spend quite a bit of time in, in Canadian cities as a Canadian myself. And Vancouver has, has done a really excellent job of engaging um, communities and local government in, in debates about transit and, and, and transit funding, particularly, whereby we've got, you know, environmental organizations linking up with business communities around a proposal um, to invest in public transport. So that cuts across the political spectrum. Now, in terms of bipartisan support, you kind of need to ground that in the community in the first place. And once you've got bipartisan, so to speak, support in the community, then you get that kind of support from your politicians as well. When everyone's committed to delivering public transport in a project like this, it's been about trading off, well, in what form will this project take? Um, and that's another discussion that happens a little bit later on. But let's get a commitment and let's move forward and let's have a plan and let's get some good planning in place. Well, you sound hopeful. Thanks so much for talking with us on Triple R. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, uh, next up we're going to be talking about the future of everything. Uh, Tim Domlop is a writer and academic and he doesn't accept that GDP is the best measure of a region's economic performance or that robots will inevitably replace our jobs or that parliamentary democracy is working as well as it could be. He's got a whole bunch of other ideas to challenge these assumptions of the way things have to be and in his book, The Future of Everything, Big Audacious Ideas for a Better World. He spells out his um, views on things. And Tim, this sound seems like such a fun book to write, to just kind of go, you know what? Rebuild the world. I'm yeah. just going to put some big headings, power, media, government, and just write what I reckon. Um, but I, I imagine this has come from a, a long history of writing on these topics. Yeah, it has, um, especially the areas of government and media. Um, this is kind of been my area of study for quite a long time. Um, but in a sense, it's a follow-on from the previous book too, which was Why the Future is Workless, which was about the effect of technology on work in particular. And I kind of tried to bring in that 
out in that the idea um, that these issues were political rather than um, merely technological uh, and it seemed to make sense then to have a follow-up book that kind of looked a bit more in detail at the uh, at the political aspect of these changes because I think they're huge changes however you look at it where, where, whatever position you take on you know will a robot take my job and those sorts of arguments um, they're going to have an enormous effect on our working lives and, the, and, you know, and that just impacts on everything. So I think you've got to look at the other institutions around us as well. Yeah, yeah at, at the end of the book, you, you talk about, I guess, the decision to name the book The Future of Everything, which is a very audacious title. And you say that it's kind of a conceit in a way to invite or encourage the reader to think in kind of big picture terms. Yes. Have we lost the ability to do that, do you think, or are we yes. not doing that enough? Yeah, I, I really, I think we do. Look at look at our current politics at the moment, you know, we're kind of... You can't look down. away. Yeah, well, that's right. It's a total car crash, and, but it, it's total, you know, it's a big, fat, ingrown toenail. They're just obsessed with themselves, especially at the level of um, the Liberal National Party government at the moment. And... Um, they, they find it very, you know, and it's very backward looking too. And, I th- you know, this is across the political spectrum, I think, uh, a little bit too. So, you know, we're obsessed with, you know, we're having arguments about f- governments funding coal mines and stuff like that. It's just, it's crazy, all this stuff. So it's very, I think, when, when that's your day-to-day politics, it's very hard to step back and go, actually, you know what, we could do some better stuff here. And um, so, yeah, the the... That was the idea behind the title of the book, like I say in that uh, conclusion, that if I just called it Six Things to Make the World Better or something like that, it kind of focuses you in too much. But if you call it the future of everything, <laughs> yeah. well, well you know, step back. And we've seen, you know, leaders leaders try and do this. Um, Kevin 07 tried to bring, mm. remember, a whole diverse, well, it wasn't that diverse, but a whole bunch of people together to, yeah. to, to kind of mull over ways that things could be better. And that kind of didn't go anywhere but you do zero in on a on a few things and maybe we can look at some of them like one is is government so this idea that our parliament is two chambers and that's how it works and we vote them in uh is the the way that it works at the moment but you see a different way forward there that we could have citizens more actively involved and i suppose we saw you know indigenous leaders and the community put up this idea of a voice to parliament and it was immediately knocked on its head. Mm. But you see that there is a, a way forward with this kind of idea. Yeah, look, I think we've absolutely got to do it. Part of the problem that we have with um, democracy at the moment is people feel really disengaged from it. And it's no wonder, you know, it's it's run by a, a, a political class that are obsessed with themselves. It's very difficult for ordinary people to have their voice in there. Um, a lot of that political class in the media and the government and the political parties um, actually hold we the people in a fair degree of contempt. You know, they think we're just not up to the task of self-government, that, you know, you have to leave it to technocrats and experts to do it. And, look, I've got no problem with expertise being involved in, um, you know, telling us how to do things, but the decision about what we do and why we do it is, is really a matter for the citizens. And I think the only way that you really get a citizen's voice back into the process is to redesign that key institution of the parliament and put 
people front and centre in it. So the suggestion that I make um, is going back to kind of, you know, the ancient Greek idea of democracy, which was citizen involvement. So instead of voting people in on a regular basis, as we currently do, that we employ a system that's called sortition, you know, sorting people into there. Um, And it works basically like a jury system. So everybody has gets jury duty at some point in their life. That's one of the um, obligations that we have as members of a democratic society. I want to extend that idea to Parliament so that we all get a go um, at sitting in a House of Parliament. I call it a people's house for want of a better term. I actually had this other name, but the publisher told me to get rid of it. They thought it was ridiculous. Um, I can't even remember what it was now. So anyway, it's gone out of my head completely. But yeah, so this idea of a people's house, which is, we, we run um, regularly in different jurisdictions around Australia, things like citizens' juries and deliberative polling, where we do bring people in. Yeah, Melbourne City Council used it for their for their budget. For, uh, for it, their, exactly, um, yeah. they did. And the, the recent changes to the abortion law in um, Ireland entirely was driven by a a citizen's jury that put the idea to the government. So I think, you know, when you give people the structures, the institutional support to have these sorts of discussions, they're actually really good at it. So I'd just like to scale that citizen's jury idea up to the kind of the parliamentary level. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it kind of got me thinking about some of the, not all, but some of the independents that have been elected to parliament recently that, that, you know, some of whom were chastised by the public for not, of course, winning many votes, but that's a system they ended mm-hmm. up in there, someone like Ricky Mueller, for example. But when they're actually in there and, and did kind of think about issues and consider them on their merits, you kind of saw a bit more, I guess you had more of a sense of a, a human being in there weighing up issues as they arose rather than simply a whole bunch of people towing a party line. And perhaps that's the kind of thing you could see more of with yeah, this kind I, of sortition I, I, arrangement. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, for all the faults that our current system has and what a lot of that conventional political class sees the failures of the system. You know, we're often told that what was Paul Curting's line? Unrepresentative swirl. Um, His comment about the the Senate. And, you know, kind of, I've got a bit of sympathy for that. But it's actually, we've actually thrown up some good, ordinary people who don't come from that political class. have got some different experiences of living in communities, etc, etc. That they they bring into the parliament and in a way that um, the political class, you know, the Uh, pre-selected people from the major parties aren't able to do. So they have that effect on the debate there, but they also um, are participating... They're they're not just rock throwers anymore, so if if the institutional support's around them, um, they actually end up being really good parliamentarians or senators um, at the end of the day. And Ricky Muir is a really great example. I think he won a huge amount of respect from people who were maybe really shooters party. You've got to be kidding, you know, how's, how's this going to work? But he actually got in there, did the hard work and, and just showed that if you give ordinary people that ability to participate in that sort of process, they actually do a really good Wasn't job. Wasn't he motor enthusiasts? Was, oh, did he change? It, oh, was it motor enthusiasm? I think it was. Yeah, anyway, I think you're right. uh, but I, I suppose <laughs> that goes to another topic that you you cover, and right at the very beginning of your book, Tim, is on power because mm. those that hold it at the moment wouldn't come at this idea that you're no, putting th- forward. No, that's exactly right. Um, and this was a really important thing to me with the book that the first chapter had to be about power because I got really sick of reading books saying, "Hey, I've got these really good ideas." 
and presuming that that's just going to happen. Um, you need to have a, uh, a, an understanding of political power, how the institutions work. And so we can see how it happened, you know, in the last couple of weeks at the federal level, people that understand power really well, yeah, well uh, can, can wreak havoc. Yeah, can absolutely wreak havoc. But again... I guess the underlying principle with all of this stuff is bottom-up power, is what I'm talking about. So um, the the sort of power that I'm arguing for is, you know, grassroots, organising base power, getting people in their communities um, involved, not just in the process of, um, you know, as volunteers and that sort of stuff, but actually leading the process. And that involves a certain level of training. You know, unions are better at this sort of stuff than most organisations, but it's that sort of bottom-up power that I'm talking about. And you absolutely need um, communities involved in that sort of exercise of power. Otherwise, yeah, you do just end up with business as usual. So that's what was really important to have the power chapter right at the beginning. Yeah, and communities speaking to each other as well, because you're, you're critical of, you know, some kind of, I guess, pushes for change from the progressive side of politics where it's been run perhaps by more elites speaking to each other rather than engaging with ordinary citizens to kind of encourage change on a particular issue. But something like, for example, the the same-sex marriage postal survey did involve quite a lot of organising and engaging with all types of Australians, which turned up a result that, you know, many people in Parliament wouldn't have expected. I think that's exactly right. It, um, you know, it, it was a horrible process to put uh, the LGBTI community through that postal survey and it was really just a political fix for Malcolm Turnbull at the time or even going back further. Um, and But it turned out to be really successful but the reason it was successful is for years and years, you know, the um, same-sex marriage uh, campaign had been really good at changing the nature of the conversation, making it about equality, etc., and making people think much more in terms of, um, yeah, actually, I, I know people uh, in this situation. Why should they be de- denied a life partner uh, just because that's the way we've always done things? And, and I think that eventually that grassroots changing of the conversation eventually um, set it up so that when we got this, you know, fairly faulty mechanism of the um, uh, of the vote on it, um, it romped in. And, yeah, and, and Senator and, Janet Rice said that, you know, it was a very dark cloud, that plebiscite so-called, but the silver lining was how compelling the, the result was. That's right. And I think it just... Um, it, it completely robbed that minor conservative faction, the Abbott faction, of any sense that they could claim to be a silent majority, which is what they constantly... You know, we're the ones who actually represent the real views of Australia. Well, you know what? You didn't. You 70... What was it? 75% of people in Abbott's own electorate voted yes. There were only two, three electorates in the whole country that voted no. And they were Labor, mostly? uh, Yeah, they were too. Um, So it's... um, It is a silver lining. It was a nasty process to go through, but it's an incredible silver lining, I think. Yeah, Yeah, and I I suppose you can look at this, you know, the big picture issues and where uh, politics, as as usual, is failing and the the big one is on climate change and energy policy and I suppose how they interact and, and we can look globally for failures in this area uh, and and you write extensively on the commons and how we need to understand that 
understand how we share and what we share and what we you know hold in common as being fundamental and is this something that you think many of us have forgotten well, I think so. We've, we've lived through 40 years of neoliberalism, which is, you know, what's the key word we associate with neoliberalism? It's privatisation. It's all those things that we owned in common, those um, everything from the electricity grid to um, public space, um, the things that everybody owns and nobody owns, so to speak. We've actually privatised a, a lot of that. And how, how do you expect to run a democracy when we don't own those things in common anymore? Forget the kind of the economic and political disaster that a lot of these things, privatisations, have turned out to be, electricity prices being the obvious. Well, Premier Dan Andrews came out and said recently that he perceived that the market has failed in that area. Totally failed. Mm-hmm. And, and we set it up in that way with the privatisation. So um, I... I really argue strongly in the book for getting those things back into common ownership. Um, and, uh, and it's not just... I think they run more efficiently uh, in those situations. There's um, kind of a moral imper- imperative and a democratic imperament that, imperative that people have to feel ownership of the not just the country that they live in, but the things that make up that country as well. So the, the notion of the commons is actually, um, yeah, really central to the book. And, and I suppose just the way that that's framed, I, mean, I, I think a lot of people would agree with you and, and lots of people anti-privatisations, particularly of, of utilities and, mm. you know, water and and gas assets and electricity assets and so forth. And there's been a lot of them sold, Port of Melbourne at the moment, you know. So these sorts of things, people are anti it. But does it put you to the margins when you're arguing to buy back? Because people often will say, well, the horse is bolted on that. We have to just deal with what we've got. Where do you feel like you um, end up being... Yeah, this has been... It's been a very strong argument of the neoliberals for um, a long time that, you know, there is no alternative that we've, uh, we've... gone down this path and you you know you can't unscramble the egg well that's just that's just power talking you know we just have to um not accept that answer and organize ourselves and demand it um i think i quote some um research in the book that shows that yeah those sorts of privatizations of utilities water electricity etc are amongst the most ongoingly consistently unpopular policies um, that we've had over the last 40 years, but it's still foisted on us. But what that tells us is that there is, you know, with the proper organisation, um, you could develop a groundswell um, against this sort of stuff and and get them back into public ownership. It's actually doable. And I, and I spell out there some methodologies um, as to how it... Uh, how it could happen. And it's not just in Australia this is happening, it's happening in other jurisdictions around the world and I quote some British examples as well. And in fact the Labor Party there under Jeremy Corbyn has um, renationalisation of um, various assets as part of their um, manifesto these days. So you know, it's it's becoming less marginal and the, the notion that you can't unscramble the egg is less compelling than it was I think. We're speaking with Tim Dunlop all about his book The Future of Everything, Big Audacious Ideas ideas for a better world and I guess in the Australian context um, you talk about the fact that in kind of the post-war period that's when we see large-scale social social change and kind of reorienting of societies at kind of a, a very significant level it's kind of I guess easier at that time of crisis to change the way that society operates but of course we don't wish for a war anytime soon but what would it take for us to kind of I guess be shocked into making some of these changes in the Australian context do you think? Well I, I 
think we're feeling pretty shocked at the moment. Um, we're, we're seeing, um, you know, governments fall apart. There's such dissatisfaction with the major parties. They've gone from, ha- you know, kind of basically dividing up the vote 50-50 amongst themselves for, um, in perpetuity to um, being lucky now to get around about a 30% primary vote. Um, the nature of our voting system means it's difficult to... Um, for people to find somewhere to put that vote, but so we, but we're getting, you know, the the system's kind of developing its own little workarounds and stuff with independents and minor parties, um, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, look, I think it it really can be done. Um, and one of the arguments that I make in the book that you sort of alluded to there that is if we don't get that ground up. Um, swell for change and the elites um, who are running things at the moment don't get that message then we do risk violence because what else is the alternative so my argument is very much you know to avoid violence you have to learn to wield power and that's kind of at the basis of the book Um, and it's probably more apparent somewhere in the United States um, at the moment where you're getting uh, people like Alexandria uh, Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who was elected, um, it won the primary against a long-standing Democratic um, incumbent. Um, and there's uh, a bunch of people like that. There, there seems to be that swell in America because, obviously, the Trump factor is really brought into focus what can happen when you let, you know, essentially a megalomaniac... Um, have the levers of power. I was also interested in in your chapter on the media because there's been, I guess, an assumption with the rise of social media and I guess diversification of the media in in some ways that the power of those old gatekeepers has kind of been reduced in some part. But we've seen people like Alan Jones, Sky News, playing a very significant role in giving um, liberal parliamentarians the, the confidence, I guess, to push for a leadership spill. And you write as well that in the lead up to, to Trump's election in, in the US, that it was those kind of traditional media outlets that were really driving the, the support for him in some way. So they still have quite a lot of power in our society, despite the rise of these kind of digital platforms. Yeah, it's a really interesting area and it's I, I, I find it hard to get my head around it entirely. In Australia, it's, it's a slightly different situation and the examples that you use there of those, you know, right-wing, um, that right-wing media, I, I don't think that they, they really do have the same power across society that they used to do. So if you look at, say, um, the last federal election where the Daily Telegraph in Sydney campaigned really strongly against um, the, the Labor government and, and you know, right into what they see as their heartland in Western Sydney, um, those seats stayed pretty Labor. Mm. You know, they were, they were pretty much ignored. Where these organisations still have immense power is within... Um, the political class itself. In those circles. Yeah, in, in those circles. And they really do seem to be quite easily swayed by what a Ray Hadley or an Alan Jones or an editorial in The Telegraph or The Herald Sun says, it, it's, or, or The Australian in particular, you know. They, you know, they're actually fairly low circulation um, uh, sections of the media, all of those, um, but they're aimed at a very particular demographic and yeah, power and influence, and yeah, they're very targeted. Exactly, and th- and that political class 
um, really feels that pressure and they respond to it in a way that I don't think the rest of society does anymore. Mm. Yeah, and so, I mean, you you do write that, um, you know, that media or journalists as the fourth estate um, could do with a rethink as well. And I suppose there, you know, to use the Trump example, there are parts of the media in the United States that would probably be shifting to where you would hope media would shift, which is to be enablers of understanding and they're sticking Trump Trump tweets, you know, in the middle of the paper right towards the back or whatever because they've decided that because it's a soundbite doesn't have to be on the front page. Mm. We're seeing those sorts of things happening over there. Do you, and circulation's going up for some of those publications. So are you seeing that that, is a trajectory that that we might be heading here or...? or well, yeah, look, I, I think we're going through this huge... It, it's been going for 20 years. Like, my first book 10 years ago almost now was on the changes uh, to media because of digitisation because my background in all of this was, you know, I kind of started with blogging when I lived in America at 2001, end of 2001, and saw all those changes happening. Um, and it was, it was clear that... There was, you know, something happening, but how influential that was um, wasn't really clear. We've had now 20 years to see it. And what we've really seen is the, you know, the standard model of um, the funding model for most uh, commercial journalism has collapsed because of uh, digitisation. And they've really struggled in that environment, you know, with laid-off journalists. It's just harder to cover stuff, more expensive. Um, they haven't got the revenue to do it. But um, they, they haven't really come up with... So, that, so there's the business model, but there's also the journalism model, which was, you know, kind of built around sensationalism and or just being straight reporting. You know, the, the Prime Minister said this, the President said that. But what someone like Trump's realised is that you can really exploit those um, conventions of journalism and dominate... Um, press coverage by just being outrageous and so what you're talking about is the press stepping back and saying well actually we shouldn't be manipulated like that we've got to find other way we don't have to report everything he said just because the president said it or if we do we need to put it uh in this context so you're seeing headlines at the moment saying uh president trump said today comma with no evidence that, um, you know, he was getting a bad deal from Google searches or something like that, whatever his latest little concern is. So, yeah, I think there's this huge rethink happening in media. I don't think it's quite as obvious in Australia as it is in the United States. I think partly because of the concentration of media ownership in Australia, it's very hard to break through uh, those conventions and if you sit on Twitter and have these discussions with journalists you'll find that there's you know there's actually quite a lot of resistance to the notion that they have to do things differently but I think there's no doubt they have to do things differently. Yeah and um, I suppose move from from being victims to to being on the front foot as well because we need a healthy media. Well yeah, yeah absolutely. We need a thriving media. Yeah I couldn't agree more and I make that point right at the beginning of the media chapter is um, democracy just absolutely requires a free press Um, but it has to do the job in a particular way and I think that traditional model has really outlived its usefulness. Yeah and Mm. I think I mean I I think you put it quite succinctly and I don't have it open but where you know as a as a so-called free country you need to be able to freely speak back to government. Yes that's right yeah exactly And media is a very good megaphone for that. 
Yeah, we, we need uh, an independent institution that has power that allows us to challenge other centres of power, such as government, uh, within our society. Democracy just doesn't... Fun- especially a big, complex democracy, democracies like we have these days just can't function without that. I was interested as well in your decision to finish the book with a chapter called Joy because we don't often talk or hear about joy in this context when they're talking about all the things that are wrong with the world and how that could be improved. But why why did you feel the need to, I guess, include that final chapter? Yeah, I absolutely did um, because a lot of these sort of discussions, how do we make the world better, is, you know, about the mechanics of those things, the stuff we've been talking about today. But, you know, there's there's also the why. Why why do you want to do these things? You don't want to do it for their own sake. And it's really about quality of life. And, you know, we talk about, in like an American context, the pursuit of happiness. Okay, well, that that's part of it, but what does that actually mean? Um, and the discussion I end up having in that final chapter is about... Um, the the joy of participation basically is what I'm talking about that you can actually, you know, we tend to be cynical and disengaged um, from these political processes but it, if you actually do get involved in them, in those sort of community things, it's actually a really joyous process um, Hannah Arendt who I quote in the book points out that you know when the founding fathers of America talked about the pursuit of happiness they meant the public pursuit of happiness it was about self-governance, having control over your own life this is what brings satisfaction and joy into your life and i really wanted to get that in there rather than just well you know here's a bunch of ideas for what you can do (laughs) (laughs) well i'm good on you and um and it's a wonderful thing that new south has given you the chance to put all this into a book um tim dunlop's book the future of everything uh big audacious ideas for a better world you can get your hands on it and uh it's been really great to pick your brains on this this morning oh, thanks thanks guys and, thanks for and all the best with it this has been a podcast from 3 triple 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au